0: we are in Romans chapter 1 and we are uh, the the goal today was to do verses 13 through 17 which doesn't seem like a lot but <laughs> but there is a ton of stuff in here. Uh one commentator said this is a theologically dense passage. <laughs> and uh And that it is. There's a lot to talk about. So, yeah. Well, that is a problem. When he first, when I first read that, I had to kind of stop and think about that for a second. How he meant that. But uh, yeah. Hopefully, it's not us. But but. uh, Last week we looked at verses eight through thirteen. We are kind of in the uh, in the middle of. Or today we're approaching the end of Paul's. Introduction to the Letter of Romans, uh, and we talked about the kind of standard format of a of a letter written in the Greco-Roman role world of the of this particular era. What are the three components that make up a typical introduction in a in a in a letter in this context? You remember? First, first, they typically state right off the bat who's writing the letter. Makes sense to me. I wish we did that today. Okay, right off the bat, they say who's writing the letter. And then what's the second element? Who the recipients are. Okay, who they're writing to. And then the third element in the typical introduction is a what? A A greeting. Yeah. And typically, this would take one sentence or two. It would be very brief where they just say, you know, this is so-and-so writing to so-and-so and greetings to you or peace to you or, or whatever. So, this was a typical greeting. Paul obviously expands that considerably and his first sentence is seven verses long. Uh, and he begins in verses one through uh, seven just by, uh, just by talking about himself, introducing or identifying himself as the sender or as the writer. Uh, But he goes on and he tells us a great deal about himself in that first sentence, those first seven verses. Why does he do that? Okay. Okay, he's writing to a group of people who have never met him before. Uh, so it's important that they understand who he is. Why else?
1: Is he,
0: about there? he is thinking about locating there, at least temporarily.
1: What else? The type of Pardon? Oh,
0: okay, okay, okay. Now, what what is he getting ready to do in this letter? Okay, yeah, but what is he? What is he about to do in the letter itself? What? Why, why is he writing this letter?
1: <laughs> well, I don't
0: know if I would put it that way, <laughs> but he is going to set out for them the whole the gospel of Christ, and he's going to lay that out for them in considerable detail, and then he's going to spend several chapters talking about the implications of that theology on their behavior and their conduct. And so he needs to establish his credibility. And so that's one of the, one of the other reasons why he goes into this uh, so much uh, detail about himself and the gospel and and uh, that he's a slave of Christ and all these various things that he mentions is in order to establish his credibility. Okay? So after he identifies himself, then the passage that we looked at last week beginning... In verse 7 and down through verse 12, he identifies his recipients. Uh, So last week we looked at those verses. And what are some of the things that we talked about last week in Paul's uh, discussion of the Romans themselves?
1: Okay, okay.
0: Their faith was was being proclaimed, he said, throughout the whole world. Uh, that's uh, probably uh, uh, a bit of hyperbole, as we said. But the idea is that throughout the entire world uh, that, that, that uh, Paul is familiar with, uh, the word is being spread that the gospel uh, has come to Rome and that Roman Christians are beginning to believe. What's significant about that? What did we, what did we discover about Rome last week? Okay, it really is, uh, with the exception, of course, of, you know, if uh, if you go, you know, clear clear out east to China, with the exception of China and and the Chinese civilization of the time, Rome is pretty much the center of the world at this point. What else do we know about Rome? We talked quite a bit about Rome last week.
1: what was it what was it like you think of that a city would
0: be? okay it really was we talked about various cities in the world today and what we think of we talked about when what do we think of when we think of Paris what do we think of when we think of washington d c what do we think of when we think of Hong Kong you know what do we think of when we think of amsterdam and as we mentioned several of the great cities of the world, what comes to our mind. And we pointed out that when people of the first century thought of Rome, they thought of all those things. Because Rome was all of those things. Rome was the center of culture. It was the center of military power. It was the center of political power. It was the center of art. It was the center of architecture. It was the center of philosophy. It was the center. And so you had all of this going on in Rome. How large was Rome? How big was it? About a million people. We don't know the exact number, but, but a fairly safe estimate during the first century is it probably had about a million people in it. We talk about where they lived. Do you remember what we said about where these people lived? Okay. Ninety percent of the people lived in what we would think of today as apartments. Okay, so they didn't own their own individual standalone structures or homes. Only ten percent of the population owned their own homes. Uh, but they lived in these apartment uh, facilities. Uh, and uh, what what kind of people then did we have in Rome? Very
1: large slave population.
0: Okay. A large slave population. And I forgot to get that statistic. I should have gotten that statistic for you. I, I forget uh, exactly what the percentage was. But the percentage of slaves... in in the city of Rome is really quite astonishing and and, uh, I hesitate to to offer a guess here but as I recall it was something around 25% or higher were actually slaves in the city of Rome so an immense population of slaves in the city where did these slaves come from? okay some by choice but many of them came by conquest as Rome conquered the various uh, places of the world uh, countries of the world and nations in their in that vicinity of the Mediterranean. They would bring these uh, so they would bring some of the people in and sell them as slaves. OK, so you have this very diverse population, you have all kinds of people there from all different ethnic groups. You have uh, you have all kinds of different languages being spoken. Uh, And and of course, all kinds of different religions are being practiced because it is uh, you have all these slaves have been brought in. And of course, they bring oftentimes with them, they bring these things. But you also have uh, the the dynamic of commerce going on. So you have all these people from various parts of the world coming and going to Rome uh, in, in economic commerce. And they're bringing all these various ideas and philosophies and things to the city of Rome. So Rome is really the, the center of all this and it's very diverse. It's very cosmopolitan. Uh, it's uh, very sophisticated. There's a great deal of the, of the wisdom of the world there, if you will. There's many things there that we would admire and that we even still admire today, but it was also a city that was filled with a great deal of wickedness and brutality uh, oftentimes uh, when, uh, when uh, someone gave birth to a child they didn't want, they just take the child out and just dump them live out on the city dump and let them die on the, on, the, on the heaps of the city dump. And the Christians eventually became known for the ones who would go out to the city dump and retrieve these children and save their lives. So it's a very brutal city in many respects and yet a very sophisticated and intellectual city. And uh, so it is in many ways. When you think about Rome, it has many parallels to our own culture, doesn't it? And to our own day. So it's very easy to, to connect and relate to these Roman believers when we think about what Rome was like uh, and compare it to our own day. So those are some things, and those become important for us as we go on and think about the things that we want to think about today. But before we do that, is there anything else you want to mention from last week that you remember or that stood out to you? It was here last but about
1: the
0: hero, emperor. Okay, we didn't talk about uh, the specific emperor. But,
1: yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Actually, d- during the writing, uh, yeah. So so you have, you have these emperors. You have... Uh, First you had Claudius, and then you had Nero, and, and these guys were pretty despicable characters, and, and so you're dealing uh, you're dealing with that whole dimension going on too, yeah.
1: You kind of alluded to this just a moment ago, that you know, there's a really major witness of Christians in that. In my opinion, and Greek, most everybody at that time were very fearful of disease and death. They had to probably, you know, the the really minister to those people. Yeah. The yeah. Person, you know, they made so Yeah. So Somewhere in like we did. Yeah. Today. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody had to
0: disbelieve, you know, they made it as well. They didn't get right? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, okay. Uh, And then we talked about the fact that within this massive culture, massive cosmopolitan culture, you have this very small group of people. And what stands out about these people? What does Paul point out about these people that is so unique? To those who are in Rome, what does he call them? he calls them saints, okay? Which means they are set apart. They are they are distinguished, they're set apart from the world and they are set apart to God. And what else about them? They're saints and they are what?
1: Beloved
0: they're beloved of God. Yeah. So so that's who he's writing to and at this point they are a very small minority within the populace of the city of Rome. Well, let's pick it up then. Uh, uh, He talked about how he had wanted to come to them and he picks that theme up again in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, just uh, by way of uh, just some introductory thoughts first. Uh, one of the things I want to point out to you just right off the bat so that you don't get confused by this. Is that you'll notice that Paul several times here in this passage uses the word Greek. And he actually uses the word, Paul tends to use the word Greek in two different ways. And uh, really the only way to know how he's using the word is to is to view it in the context in which he's using it and see how he means it. But oftentimes when he uses the word Greek, uh, the word refers to what we would think of as the Hellenists. This would be not only people from Greece, but it would be people who have... Embrace the Greek language and the Greek culture. And we call that Hellenism or the Hellenists. Okay, so when you read or talk or think about Hellenism in the first century, it's talking about Greek speaking people who think Greek. They think with Greek culture. Okay, so immediately we tend to think primarily of Greece when we think of Hellenism. But really. Uh, uh, Hellenism really extended all the way through the Mediterranean. And by now, really, the center of Hellenism and the center of Greek culture is no longer Greece, but Rome itself. And Rome, in Rome itself, which we would typically think of as a Latin country, in Rome itself, we have uh, Greek as the chief language. It's the, it's, the, it's the language of the realm, so to speak. So, sometimes when he uses the word Greek, he's referring to this Hellenistic world, all right, but sometimes when he uses the word Greek, he's using it in contrast to the Jews, and when he's doing that, he really means Gentiles, okay, and uh, so he's not talking just about the Greeks or the Hellenists, but he's speaking of all the Gentile world, the non-Jews, and the thing that can get confusing is in this chapter, in this very passage we're looking at today, these five verses, he uses it both ways. So you just got to be acute to that and paying attention to that as you read. So I wanted to point that out to you. What he's doing here is he's, in one sense, continuing his opening remarks. He's going on to talk about the Romans and what they do, uh, who they are, and, and, and his plans to come to them, and that sort of thing. But he's moving from his introduction into the substance of his letter. And so what he does by the time we get to the last two verses of this passage, verses 16 and 17, is he's really kind of stating what we might think of as the, as the subject matter of his epistle. Now, you remember from my initial introduction that I, uh, that I said that I don't really believe there is one dominant theme In Romans, that there are there are several different themes which which are dominant throughout the book: the idea of the gospel, the idea of the righteousness of God, the idea of justification by faith, the whole uh, issue of the Jewish uh, Gentile relationship. And these are very these are all themes that kind of present themselves in the book. Uh, But many of those themes are introduced to us in verses 16 and 17. So, 16 and 17, really, uh, these verses are really key verses as they kind of lead us into. They're kind of the gateway into the book of Romans. So, they really are kind of Paul's introduction of his thesis. And and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, so picking up then in, in verse 13, he starts out, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you. And he goes on and he talks about his... Plans and how he had been prevented at times from coming and how he still plans to come. But one of the things that's interesting to me is how he says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And what we have here is we have what we call, and I've used this word before, we have what we call here a formula. One of Paul's formulas. And by that we mean it's a way that Paul typically says things time to time will will come across expressions or ways that a writer or in this case Paul tends to say things the same way several times and and this is one of those formulas that Paul uses I do not want you to be unaware brethren and he actually uses this formula about a half a dozen times in his epistles he uses it twice in the book of Romans but he uses it several times in these epistles. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And uh, typically we read that as kind of a throwaway line. We go, okay, it's just something he wants us, you know, wants to make sure we, we know. But, but it is interesting the places and the ways that Paul uses that expression. I do not want you to be unaware. Uh, can you think of any other places where he uses it? Kind of test your... Memory here, Paul's epistles. I,
1: I can, but I'd have to look them up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> can anybody recall one without having to look it up? Okay, I'm not going to push you too hard on this. Anybody got it? Okay. Well, of course he does it here, in chapter 11, in verse 25. He uses the same formula. And to, he does so to introduce the idea of the mystery of Israel's hardening. So in chapter 11, he's talking about how Israel is hardened, uh, temporarily hardened, uh, in order that might, God might accomplish a greater purpose. And and so he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Uh, he refers to it as a mystery of Israel's temporary hardening. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. And then he goes on to talk about Israel in the wilderness and how all of Israel went through the Red Sea and all, the Israel, all of Israel followed Moses. But with most of them, he says, God was not well pleased. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware of that. In uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware. And what's that pertain to? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be unaware of this whole issue of spiritual gifts. And he goes on for three chapters talking about spiritual gifts. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, he's talking to the Corinthians again. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. And he goes on to talk about the extent, the absolutely brutal extent of his sufferings in Asia and the significance of his sufferings for the Corinthians. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, once again, he says, I do not want you to be unaware. Can you remember what that's about? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't want you to be unaware of what? Okay, what happens to those who have fallen asleep in Christ and the resurrection of those who have preceded us in death uh, in faith in Christ? Okay, so these are the five other times that Paul uses this formula. And what strikes me is they're all pretty important subjects. These are all really important things. And Paul says, uh, he says, these are things I don't want you to be clueless about. I don't want you to be unaware of, of the mystery of Israel's hardening. I don't want you to be unaware of the significance of my sufferings in Asia for your sake. I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be unaware uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, Israel in the wilderness and the fact that even though there were many there that were all under Moses and all went through the Red Sea, that with most of them God was not well pleased. These are important ideas. I don't want you to be unaware of what happens to those who have died in Christ. Okay? These are all very important subjects to which he says, I do not want you to be unaware. So when I compare all of those to Paul's use of the formula here in Romans chapter 1, it kind of raises a question in my mind because he starts off and he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. What is the thing he doesn't want them to be unaware of? Okay, his plans or his efforts to do what? To come visit them. And when I think about that, I think, well, this is kind of interesting because this almost seems trivial compared to all these other great issues that Paul said, I don't want you to be unaware of. And I was thinking about that. and I was thinking, well, what, you know, why is it so
1: important
0: that they know that he was planning to come to them and had been prevented thus far? But as you go on down through these verses that we're looking at today, you discover that, that what Paul is really concerned about is the reason why. Or what wasn't the reason why, if I can put it that way. He had not come to Rome. You see, He says, I don't want you to be unaware that I have often planned to come to you, but what? But I was prevented or I was hindered. And you would expect at this point, would you not, that Paul would then go on to explain what hindered him, right? I mean, when, you know, somebody's kind of expecting to see you and you don't show up and then you call them or you write them and say, you know, I was really planning to come, but I was hindered. What do you expect to hear from them? Some reason, right? What is the reason Paul gives here for having not come? He doesn't give a reason, does he? What's interesting is he doesn't get around to giving that reason to chapter 15. We don't get his reason for not coming till you get to the end of the epistle. In other words, it's really in this place in Paul's writing, in this place in his letter, it's not important why he didn't come. But he is important. How can I say this so this isn't totally confusing? It's not important why he didn't come. But it is important that they know what was not the reason he didn't come. Did that make sense? In other words, when when we think somebody failed to come and visit us or failed to do something that we were hoping they would do or thought they ought to do, and they fail to do so, we tend to think of what are the reasons why they fail to do so, right? We begin to kind of attribute motives or reasons or try to explain to ourselves, why did my good friend not come visit me? Or why did my, uh, my wife or my husband not do that chore, that responsibility that they promised me they would do? or that I, you know. And so we try to figure out why, you know, what hindered them. Well, Paul is at this point not so concerned that the Romans know what hindered him. He'll get to that at the end of the epistle. But he is very concerned that he know something that was not an issue. Something that was not a factor in preventing him from coming to Rome. Okay? And that's what he gets to. Because that is crucial for them to know. And that actually introduces the whole subject of his epistle. So that's why Paul says here, uses this formula, that he usually uses to introduce a very important subject. He uses it here because he is, in fact, about to introduce a very important subject. In fact, the most important subject we could possibly discuss. The gospel of God's Son. Okay? So he says, I don't want you to be unaware that I was often planning and I have been prevented thus far but I have often wanted to come to you in order to do what? Pardon? Well, what does he say? To obtain fruit. Yeah, there in verse uh, uh, 13. Yeah, Uh, that I wanted to come in order that I may obtain some fruit among you also. Even... As all, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So, he's going back to something he said in the previous verses about him being an apostle to the Gentiles and that he had been busy reaching out and ministering to the, the gospel to the Gentiles and he had been seeing fruit among the rest of the Gentiles. And now he wanted to come to them and he really always wanted to come to them. He had these plans to come to them and he had never succeeded because something was hindering him from coming. But he wanted to make sure that the Romans understood that there was something that they might suspect was the reason he hadn't come was not the reason he had not come. Okay, but But he wants to come and he wants to have fruit among the Gentiles. Why does he want to have fruit among the Gentiles? And among the Romans included in that group. The next verse. You
1: have
0: an obligation. I am under obligation, he says. Or I have a debt. I have a debt to you to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay? He has this obligation or he has this debt, but but before he talks about his debt to the Romans, which comes in verse 15, he he refers to his debt in verse 14 as a debt to whom? To the Greeks and the barbarians and, and the to the wise and to the foolish, okay? Now, so this brings up this subject that I just mentioned, that Paul uses the word Greeks in several ways. And here, when he's using the word Greeks, he, uh, he is using it in reference to the Hellenists. In other words, he's using it in reference to the Greek-speaking peoples and to those who are of the Greek culture. So when he is writing to the Romans... He's he's writing to uh, a city that is predominantly a Greek-speaking city. It's a Hellenist city, okay? So, in doing so, when he says, I am under obligation to the Greeks, he's including the Romans. But he is not only under obligation to the Greeks, but to whom? (coughs) To the the Greeks (laughs) and the... Pardon? All those
1: who are not Greek. Well, what does he say? Well, the Greeks consider everyone else barbarian. Okay.
0: You're getting ahead of me, Jim. Just let me go here. <laughs> okay. The barbarians. Okay. When you think of a barbarian, what do you think of?
1: One of those guys in the uh, beef ad. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> the
0: guys in the visa, ad. You know, the guys you know, the shaggy clothes and the clubs and, you know, you know, you think of these, real, you know, well, that's kind of how the Greeks thought of everybody who wasn't Greek. But but the idea of the word really barbarian is the word that's intended to sound like it, what it represents. We have words like that in the English language, like the like the word swish. Yeah. OK, we when we say swish, what do we think of? Well, you know, we think of Nike shoes or something like that. Yeah. You know, or, you know, back. OK, but the, the word is intended to sound like what it represents, and that's what the word barbarian was to the Greeks. It was a word that was intended to represent the babbling sound of somebody who spoke a foreign language. OK, and when you when you're in an environment, I remember one time I was in I was in Israel and I was at the, I was on the Mediterranean coast and I went swimming on the beach there. So I was out there swimming on the beach. I was kind of by myself in a crowd of all these uh, uh, Jewish people out there swimming in the ocean. And, of course, you know, when people are out there, they're all chattering and talking and saying different things. And I could not understand a single word that anybody was saying. You know, we were all out here having fun and splashing around. And, doing, you know, and I couldn't understand a word that was being said. It was all just babble. Okay? Well, that's the idea of the word barbarian. It's a, It's a language I don't understand. It's just utter nonsense to me. Okay? And, and but it had a it had a really kind of derogatory content to it because the Greeks like the Jews like Americans today always think they're the center of the world right that we're you know we're the best and we're the center of the world and and everything else revolves around us and wouldn't it be good if everybody were just like us okay that's the way the Jews thought that's the way the Greeks thought that's the way we as Americans think okay we just we all just tend to think that way okay. Oh, yeah. Pardon?
1: <laughs> What's wrong
0: with that? Well, it was wrong when the Greeks and the Jews did it. <laughs> so, at any rate, we tend to think that way. Okay? And the Greeks thought that way. So, anybody who was not a Hellenist, who didn't speak the Greek language, and who didn't imbibe of the Greek culture, was a barbarian. They were, they were foolish. They were ignorant. They were lower class people. Okay? And so when Paul says, I am under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, his second phrase, to the wise and to the foolish, is just another way of saying his first phrase. He's kind of repeating himself. The wise being the Greeks and the foolish being the barbarians. Now, he's writing to Romans. He's writing to people who are Hellenists, right? So in writing to the Romans and saying this, he's kind of giving them kind of a kind of a soft compliment, isn't it? He's kind of classing them with the wise. But the thing that's striking about Paul is that he sees that his gospel must go to whom? To all. To both the wise and the foolish. That he has a debt, He has an obligation. He has an apostleship to preach the gospel in every single context both to those who are foolish and ignorant and uneducated and uninformed and to the elite and the sophisticated and the wise and the intelligent, that the gospel is to go to all. Now, what has that got to do with what he's about to say? Well, we'll see that in just a minute as we go on. But so, so Paul is under obligation. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, Now, you guys, you're in that class. You are in that class of Greeks and of course some in Rome were probably of the barbarians because some of them were slaves and probably came speaking foreign languages may not have learned Greek yet. Uh, So even there are possibly some barbarians but primarily these would be the wise. These would be the sophisticated. And this is this whole city of Rome. The city of Rome is the citadel of wisdom and sophistication and intelligence and philosophy and it's It's the pinnacle of this, along with some other cities uh, of the world, but primarily Rome represents this, okay? And he says, I am under obligation to preach this, and so I am eager on my part to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And I just want to point out to you that even though he is under obligation, he feels this sense of debt, he doesn't chafe under it. He has an eagerness. He is eager to preach the gospel in Rome.
1: Yeah. When he said wise and foolish, I thought of the passages in Proverbs that talk about the foolish. Okay. But you are suggesting, by the way you said that, that he is not talking about those kinds of foolish. but he's talking about the contrast between what the Romans think of education. Yes, yes. Because
0: he's writing to that Roman context. And so writing to that Rome, that Hellenistic context, that's how they think. And so he's making clear, my gospel is to all those people. Okay.
1: Uh, okay. Uh,
0: then he makes this really curious statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the question is, what prompted Paul to say this? In fact, a few commentators, not many, but a few are so troubled by Paul's statement of this that they think he can't really be serious. That the idea of Paul being ashamed of the gospel is so foreign to our thinking that they really think that what what it really means is, I am proud of the gospel. Uh, and and there's actually, a, it's actually a, 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 a literary technique that we use where we use a negative to express a positive, okay? I forget the, what the term is uh, off the top of my hand, but we uh, uh, occasionally will, and I can't think of an example right now, but we occasionally we use a, a negative when we really mean it's a positive, okay? And so some commentators think that's really what Paul's doing here, but I don't. I think he really means to emphasize here that there is the possibility, the potential for shame, but he is not. Uh, There's a distinct possibility uh, that that is true, Uh, but that would be, I think, incidental to Paul's intent here. I think it's a very clear reason why he's saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because Paul has, for these lo these many years, failed to come to Rome. And by this time, I think it appears that Paul is sensitive because he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have oftentimes planned to come to Rome. But what he's really saying here is, I want you to know that there is there are reasons why I have not come to Rome yet but one reason is not that I am ashamed of the gospel you see when we think of Rome when we think of this city of sophistication and wisdom and 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 power and and philosophy and you know just the pinnacle of of knowledge and 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 human wisdom which he will deal with later but uh when When we think of Rome in that light, one might have the inclination to think, how will the gospel fare in that context
1: don 't get ahead of me <laughs> but you're right
0: you're right okay and we'll de- we'll develop that here in just a second but but when we think of we think of Rome in this context and you think of these poor Roman believers and they're there and they're struggling with this all the time and they're trying to make the gospel coherent and understandable in a a context in which it's competing against all these other philosophies and all these other ideas and Paul just keeps not showing up and not showing up and not showing up they might be tempted to think that Paul is somehow afraid of how his gospel will fare in that context And Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I don't think it's beyond credibility to think of the possibility of Paul being ashamed. We actually have several examples in Scripture in Paul's writings where it's clear he's concerned about that possibility. He writes to the Ephesians and he says, I want you to pray that I would have boldness to preach as I ought to preach. We looked at that passage at the end of Acts when he finally did get to Rome. Last week we looked at that passage at the end of Acts. When he finally did get to Rome, remember he's coming to Rome finally and it's about three or four years after he writes the letter here and he finally gets there not as a free man but as a prisoner and he's coming into Rome and as he's approaching Rome, remember the Roman Christians here, he's coming and they come out on the Appian Way to meet him and when Paul sees them, what does it say he did? He took courage. So here's Paul finally coming to this city that he'd wanted to come to for so long where he had wanted to preach the gospel and he was eager to preach the gospel. But now as he's on the very threshold, he needs courage. And he sees the Roman believers and they come and it says he thanked God and took courage and then went on into the city. Sometimes with with these men and women of God in Scripture, we get them so elevated up on a pedestal that we think they don't struggle or didn't struggle with the same temptations and weaknesses that you and I struggle with. But I think Paul struggled with the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't think he succumbed to it, but I think he faced it and and he several times asked people to pray that he would have boldness to preach the gospel. He said, as I ought to preach.
1: But he's. At that point, too, he was also concerned when he was very very to practical person because he was concerned for his digital body. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Go ahead. If he had been born in Rome, he would have been of the upper class. Yeah. He was very well Was a Roman citizen. Yeah. And so he would have been. And and I think maybe some of the Christians in Rome were afraid that he was overlooking them because they were. There were barbarians. Oh, that's a good possibility.
0: That's a good thought, sir. And I think
1: maybe they thought he was being a student. Yeah. Okay, good. Good thought.
0: Well I want to suggest to you that in addition to the idea of the gospel coming into this context is a far more profound reason why Paul might be ashamed of the gospel and why you and I might be ashamed of the gospel. And it comes to this thing that Jim just mentioned is what theologians call the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. Paul had written to the Corinthians uh, sometime before this. He had written to the Corinthians in chapter 1. And he had talked about his gospel and, his, and, and how the world viewed his gospel. And in, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the gospel as being a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And that word stumbling block comes from the Greek word from which we get the word scandal. Hence, we talk about the scandal of the cross. But it's almost impossible for us in the 21st century to comprehend the scandal of the cross. But the idea of... a Scandal, uh, the Greek word there is it's, it's, a, it's a word for a trap, okay, and the idea, the way the word was used, and the reason our translations usually translated a stumbling block, is it's something about someone or something that someone does or something that happens that arrests our ability to think favorably about something. So we talk about, nowadays, we talk about political scandals, okay? And we have some politician and and we are scandalized by his behavior. What does it mean? It means we're stumbled. There's something this politician may do. Or maybe it's a preacher, you know, some religious figure, and we're scandalized by it. There's something he does. Maybe it's an immoral act or an illegal act, but it's something that's so reprehensible to us that it absolutely erases any possibility of credibility with that person anymore. We are scandalized by them. We are stumbled by them. Okay? And the Jews, the preaching of the cross was a scandal. It was a stumbling block. It was something that was so offensive to them that they could go no further in pursuing this idea of the faith, the Christian faith. To the Jews, he is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, he is foolishness. Comes from the word from which we get the word moron. Okay? And the idea here is that to the Gentiles, the preaching of the cross was madness. It was madness. Now, why is the preaching of the cross madness to the Gentiles? And why is it a scandal to the Jews? Well, this is where it's just so hard for us in the 21st century with pretty gold crosses hanging around our neck and pretty gold crosses on front of our churches to comprehend the reprehensible and despicable act and implications of crucifixion. We just don't think that way in the 21st century in the Western world. I was in a store this week and I was being waited on by a, a, a clerk, a woman. And, and she was waiting on me. And she was a very pleasant woman. But she used the Lord's name in vain. She swore. She used the Lord's name in vain. And there was a golden cross hanging around her neck. I don't think that woman understands the scandal of the cross. But you see, the crucifixion was was not just a the way they put people to death. It was a way that they destroyed someone. That they, that they not only put him to death, but, they, but the person was, was absolutely rendered disgusting, reprehensible, shameful. They had words for it like the infamous stake, the terrible cross, the criminal wood, the slaves' punishment. Uh, several decades before Paul wrote this letter, about a hundred years or so, I think it was, before Paul wrote this letter, there had been a slaves' rebellion in Italy. And, uh, of course, you can imagine, when you have that many slaves, as we've been talking about, you have a slaves' rebellion. That gets to be a pretty serious issue, okay? So they had a slaves' rebellion. And they finally, the Romans managed to put down this slave rebellion. And they took 6,000 of those slaves' and lined them up on crosses on either side of the Appian Way leading into Rome for miles and crucified them. And the stench of that crucifixion went for miles. In in terms of the first century Greco-Roman world, for somebody to have been crucified was represented such a despicable, horrible person, you would not ever want to be associated with. And so we have in the Christian gospel two irreconcilable concepts to the first century mind. The first is the idea of an incarnate God. Okay. Now, the idea of an incarnate God is not that much of a stumbling block to the first century. In fact, Caesar, Caesar himself claimed to be incarnate God, right? Okay. So, they would allow the possibility that God could become incarnate. So, we could maybe allow that your Jesus is God. But we cannot. It is madness. It is moronic. It is utter folly to suggest that the Son of God, the one you say is the creator of the world, could suffer the slave's punishment. It is moronic. It is madness. But to the Jews, it's even more. To the Jews, it is a scandal. Why is it a scandal to the Jews? Because to the Jews, you have not only this, and to them, even more incomprehensible, the idea of the incarnate God. You have that very difficult concept to grasp, coupled with the idea of the crucifixion. But then you have the absolutely insurmountable barrier that Deuteronomy says, cursed of God is every man who hangs upon a tree. Your suggestion that God could hang upon a tree and be crucified and be cursed is scandalous. It is offensive to us it is a stench to our nostrils. And Paul says, I am not ashamed
1: of the gospel.
0: Romans, I've wanted to come to you and I've tried to come to you and I've been prevented thus far. But I want you to know this. I want you to know for certain that, that in my not coming to you to preach the gospel, it is not because I am ashamed of this gospel. And he's going to go on, and as I suspected, we haven't had time to get there. He's going to go on and he's going to explain why he's not ashamed of the gospel. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And in fact, it is a gospel that I am committed to bring not only to the barbarian, not only to the foolish, not only to the uninformed, not only to the ignorant, but I am obligated and commissioned and apostled, if you will, to bring this gospel into the very citadel of philosophy and education and eruditeness and education and wisdom and knowledge of this world. And I have absolute confidence in that gospel because that gospel is, as he says, and we'll go on to this next week, the power of God unto salvation to those who believe because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And those are the reasons, and we'll explore what that means next week. Those are the reasons why
1: Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Okay.